and verse 12 hours here. Uh, I'm only going to go into the first four verses. So Genesis chapter 1 and um, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. The ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle observed that nature always fills a void. And he coined the phrase, nature abhors a vacuum. Is that new to anybody? Have you heard that phrase before? Nature abhors a vacuum. And uh, what Aristotle actually was observing was the, the, the principal law that God had installed at the founding of the earth. Notice in our scripture that God creates the earth and the earth was void. Void meaning empty. And um, the Lord um, realized, saw that the earth was void, and the scripture says the Spirit of God then hovered over that void. The next thing is then he spoke into the void, and light came forth, praise the Lord. And then, finally, God separated the light from the darkness. That pattern is deliberate. That was the pattern created into the founding of the earth, and the earth has operated under that principle ever since then in all of nature. And Aristotle, three, three, four hundred B.C., observed that, and he said, nature obviously abhors a void or abhors a vacuum. Now, when we look at the vacuum, or excuse me, when we look at the principle, there's a void, and number one, the spirit hovers over it. Number two, he then speaks into it. Let there be light. Light comes forth in the void. And then number four, he separates it from the darkness. And what I'd like to do is just simply describe that as he engages, he speaks, he produces, and then he separates. And that's God's approach to dealing with voids. He engages the void, the spirit hovering over it. He speaks his purpose into the void, creates light, light comes forth, and then he separates it from darkness. And that is the pattern that God uses to develop everything that is good in the world, from fallow plots into gardens, from depressed communities into happy societies. That is the pattern by which that which is dead, deserty, fallow, void, becomes lush and full of life, full of joy. That's the pattern that he uses. But the fact is, there's a reason why nature abhors a vacuum, as Aristotle noticed. And that reason is that the earth is under God's command to multiply and be filled. Remember that when he created Adam, 
He said, I want you to tend to this garden and I want you to cause it to multiply and fill the earth. And when he created all of the living creatures, the same command was given to everything that God created. Multiply and fill this vacuum. And so the, God created the world under that law and that principle is, is the creating force, if you will, in nature. Now, after God was finished creating the world, he said, it's all good. And the reason God said it's all good, it's all very, very good, is because every void was being filled with all the good things that God made to reproduce after their kind. You remember, he produced the birds, he produced the, the animals, and he, and he told them all, including Adam and Eve, reproduce after your kind. And so God intended to fill the void of the earth. Everything from the grass to mankind would fill every void with the good things that they were reproducing. Good things reproducing good things generation after generation was God's plan for filling the earth. Somebody say praise the Lord. Now, when Satan seized authority from man over the world, he ended up causing nature to come under the curse. And at that moment, nature changed. Not everything was good. And um, evil took hold of the earth in the form of what the Bible called a curse. And sickness entered in and destruction and every kind of misery that we see in the world today. So while generations are successfully reproducing and filling voids. They're not necessarily filling those voids with good things. They're, unless intention is involved, they're filling the void by nature, backfilling the void by nature with death, with the curse, with what is evil, what is wicked. And nature now is filled either deliberately by righteousness or by natural default. And so just think about that for a moment as we continue on. And let me say to you that nowhere, nowhere more than in human society, do we see Satan working to make sure that the curse rushes in and fills every void by default. From impressionable children to people with discouraged hearts, or disillusioned minds, Satan seeks to control the material that backfills every void. Think about it. Unless there is a decision to get a hold of God and sow those eternally good seeds that the Bible talks about, nature fills every void and fills it with the material of the curse. And wherever a garden of righteousness and a garden of peace and of joy, which the Bible says is the kingdom of God, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost, wherever a garden of righteousness or peace and joy has been cultivated, Satan labors relentlessly to make it void and turn it into a field of misery. He goes in and uproots whatever is good, whatever it has been sown in righteousness, whatever will reproduce the goodness of God, he uproots it 
and then sows whatever just by nature is available. Whatever the elements or material of the curse, he sows it into every vacant space. Satan is constantly laboring to be Lord of the void. Can you say amen? Now look, we know this because when we talk to people that are unsaved about Jesus, we are speaking into a void. We are speaking into an emptiness. We're speaking into a, a void that Aristotle noticed that God, God cre in the very beginning, um, his intention was to fill every void with the things that he has created and to make it good. But when we talk to people about Jesus, we are speaking into a void. And they are laboring through their lives to fill that void, not really understanding what the void is. We can call it hunger. We can call it whatever we want, but it's a depression. It is, a, it is an emptiness on the inside. And you remember Isaiah's prophecy in the 55th chapter of Isaiah when he said, Every one of you who thirsts, come to the water and buy, uh, come to the rivers and buy, um, uh, uh, come to the Lord, come and, and buy milk and wine without price. Buy what is good, eat what is good, rather than the straw and the, the dirt of the world that you have been feasting off of. And so when we talk to unsafe people, we are speaking about people who live in a void. And they don't understand that they are in a void. And so this void, this strategy of wanting to lord over every void, describes the terrible transition that our country finds itself in today. We are transitioning into a time of darkness and a void. And um, so-called progressives are using the government, media, corporate powers, corporate giants to uproot every planting of God's word in our society and in our culture, to pull it all up, to uh, rip out every seed so that what by nature and by default uh, nature just simply produces can f uh, flow in and fill those voids. And so Satan has created a leadership vacuum, a leadership vacuum. When a leadership vacuum exists, you then see those leadership responsibilities filled. People will rush in and take those leadership responsibilities, but they won't necessarily be people who have been deliberately installed by God or have come in and been installed with a purpose to sow righteousness. They simply come in to be leaders. And there's a story in Judges chapter 9. And I want to take a few minutes and share with you because it illustrates where we're at today. And it's a, really, it's a story about the cultural void, the political void, the national void, if you will, that exists right now in our country and explains a lot about where we're at and what God has put us here to do. In Judges chapter 9, Gideon, everyone knows Gideon, mighty man of valor. Gideon has led a long life being a judge in Israel. But towards the latter years in his life, Gideon has really slipped. 
He, um, he went out and he married a whole bunch of women. Um, many of them were idol worshipers, a lot like Solomon had done. And so he ends up having 70 children. And in his declining years, idolatry has crept back into Israel. And uh, so when he dies, the country is in a very unstable situation. He has 70 sons, which the people by nature think, well, the, the, the 70 sons of, of um, uh, Gideon will get together and they'll lead us. They'll lead Israel. They'll, they'll be the president or the premier or the whatever, the king. Um, however, he has one son who he had not by a wife, but by a handmaiden in his household who happened to be an idol worshiper. And um, she begat him a son named Abimelech. And Abimelech was very aggressive. He was uh, very ambitious. And he wanted to be king. He wanted to rule. And so he went to the people and he spoke to them. And he got the elders and the leadership of the, of the nation together. And he spoke to them and he said, look, you don't want these 70, 70 sons of, of uh, Gideon ruling over you. It's just going to be nothing but mass confusion. They're incompetent. And uh, look, why don't you anoint me king? Hire me to be your king. Let me be king. And besides, I'm your relative. I'm bone of your bone, flesh of your flesh. And um, he said, let me be king. I'll take care of you. I'll rule over you. And you'll have one person to deal with. And it sounded good to the people. They, they were like, oh, well, that sounds great. Sure, and they gave him money. And with that money, he went out and rented an army for himself. And he went to the city where the 70 sons, his half-brothers, if you will, um, lived. And he gathered them up with his army and he killed all 70 of them, slew all 70 of them in one day. And to make sure that everybody knew, I'm king now. And there's not going to be anybody challenging my authority or my position. However, one of those sons, the youngest of them, survived. And his name was Jotham. And Jotham escapes and he survives. And when he finds out that the people make Abimelech king, and what Abimelech has done, he gets into a position where he gets up on a hill and he's speaking over to the elders and the leaders of Israel. And he's shouting at them and he gives them this prophetic warning. And it's one of the, it is one of the most illustrative and instructive prophecies in the Bible. It speaks so clearly to where we are today. And he challenges them and he gives them a prophetic parable and he says this. He said, when the time came to select a king, the people went to the olive tree. Now in Israel, the olive tree was considered the most royal, the most highly cherished of all trees. So the people went to the olive tree and said, rule over us, be our king. But the olive tree said, why should I leave my fatness to go and sit in office and administrate and rule over you as king? And the olive tree said, no, I'm not interested. And so the 
he goes on with his parable and he said, So the people then turned to the fig tree. And the fig tree also was highly regarded as a royal tree, if you will, in Israel, producing figs. And who doesn't love the sweetness of figs? But the fig tree said to the people, I'm not interested in being your president. I'm not interested in being your king. Why should I leave my sweetness? You see, these, these guys, the olive tree and the um, fig tree, they were really committed to what people loved about them. People love the olives, and, and I love the attention it brings me, and I just love being a lush olive tree. And, uh, you know, through the years, at least the years that I've been on the earth, one thing I've seen is that uh, whenever you become a leader, step into a place like the president's, have you ever noticed after four years what they look like? And they are tore down, um, they are worn out, and it, it seems like with every administration it gets worse and worse. What they did to the last president was unbelievable. Um, the guy fought every day of his life uh, just unbelievable battles against oppression and, and uh, treachery and backbiting and uh, just one horrible thing after another. So who, who would want to leave their fatness to lead and be a king over God's people? Who would want to leave their sweetness? People love you when you're sweet. People love you when you're full of olives. Who doesn't want an olive? Now, I personally don't really care for olives, but, but um, I know that people who love them, you pull, pop open an olive jar, and they're like, getting, they've got their fingers in there, pulling them out. Yeah, I'll take three or four or five. So, you know, who wouldn't love being a jar of olives? So the, the olive tree says, no, 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 I'm not interested. The fig tree, no, 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 I'm not interested. So they take the next step and they go to the grapevine. Oh, the grapevine. We love our grapevines. We'd love to have a grapevine for, for king, for president. But the grapevine did the same thing. The grapevine said, my wine makes people happy. I mean, I'm a regular comedian. People invite me. I'm at every party. I'm on TV all the time. And I don't care where you're at politically. People love me. People love me. They love my wine. He said, I'm not about to leave my wine to rule over you. That's not going to happen. So they've run out of leaders to fill the void. They've all declined. And so they end up going to the thorn bush called the bramble. The bramble is just a, an ugly, nasty thorn bush that's good for nothing but impaling people on. And so they go to the bramble, and the bramble said, oh, yeah. I'll lead you. You better believe it. King, I'll be your king. Except, just know this, the conditions, if you make me your king, you will serve me. You will obey me. You will do everything I tell you to do. And if not, I will make fire proceed out and devour you. If you become my enemy by not doing what I tell you to do. And that's the nature of the thorn tree. And so that was the parable that, that Jotham shouts over the men. He said, what have you done? Why, uh, you know, surely among you there's, there are some decent men 
that will stand up and enter the void and provide good leadership. But they didn't want to. And so the, they got the default king called the Bramble King. And so Abimelech was known as the Bramble King or the Thorny King, and he was wicked. Um, Jotham's prophecy, Jotham's prophecy against the reluctance of them to enter the void and, and to fill the gap is not only based on the principle that nature abhors a vacuum, but it illustrates that unless the righteous assert their responsibility into the void, nature fills it by default. I'm sure that dawned on you uh, already, but, but you need to see that. In other words, the law of the void simply stated is this, righteousness must be deliberate because evil is by default. Righteousness must because evil will. Evil always will backfill every void that it can. And the only way to stop it is to beat it to the punch by having the Spirit of God speak over, declare the Word of God, produce a work, and then separate it from darkness. Otherwise, the void will be filled, but it'll be filled with death and darkness. Now, is this not the story of every sinner who continues to turn away from the gospel, whose steps in life take them further and further into darkness the more they say no, the more that they turn away and choose the things that, that don't fill and feed life with life so that we have the, the walking dead, if you will. So let me put it to you like this. If we let the wicked rule and then turn around and intercede and have special prayer meetings and cry out to God all day long for Him to give us righteous servants, our prayers are faulty prayers. These are not prayers God answers, and I don't care how many intercessors you get together to intercede and, and pray God give us godly servants, public servants to fill the void. God is not going to answer that prayer if the righteous, like the olive tree, like the fig tree, like the grapevine, don't want to leave their good life to serve. They don't want to step into the gap. And honestly, who among us wouldn't blame them? But life, life is not just about us. Life is about our community. Life is about our family. Life is about the world around us. And it's very tempting to just pull the covers up and keep yourself warm and, and just look at your own little world. But somebody, somebody has got to leave their house and go out and start picking people up out of the void. Because if we don't, what happens? Satan has plenty of bramble that are more than willing. And lives, and look at what's going on in America, lives are becoming impaled exponentially, stuck in the bramble and impaled. Why pray? Why pray? For God to give your children a good upbringing when you won't parent them. 
That's the same principle. Children are a void waiting to either be cultivated or to just allow the world to fill them. And when parents don't want to do the hard work of rolling up their hands and training up their children in the way they should go, they've got no business praying and asking God to give them a good life because he's not going to do it. He gave them you. And you won't parent them, so guess what? The school will. Their friends will. Social media will. Do you understand where I'm going with this? Nature abhors a void. And you can't sit back idly and disengaged and then pray and complain and ask God to bless your society, to bless your world, to bless your city when you sit there and allow nature to simply do its thing. If you don't really understand the nature of a void, go in your backyard, pull up all the sod, rake out all the rocks, get a nice clean patch of dirt, and then watch it over the next couple of months and see what it turns into. Without any effort, nature will always fill the void. Can you say praise the Lord? So just like in Gideon's time, Satan is creating a void in America, a void that he intends and has been working feverishly to backfill with every evil under the sun. In the past 30 years, the number of Americans claiming to have no religious affiliation has jumped 300%. 300%, that's significant. While we've been having church here, people abandoning faith in God has increased 300%. Nearly a quarter of the American population has abandoned belief in God and replaced it. Now listen carefully, replaced it. Nobody stays neutral, not even atheists. Nature abhors a void, and it won't tolerate a void. And a quarter of our population have abandoned their belief in God and replaced it with New Age cosmic energy. New Age cosmic energy. Why do people love worshiping some kind of cosmic consciousness or cosmic energy? Well, I'll tell you quite frankly, it's the perfect void filler. It's the perfect void filler because New Age cosmic energy has no absolute truth. There's no rules. There's no right and wrong. There's no sin. There's no moral right or wrong, up or down. When you believe in just some kind of cosmic happenstance, and that is your faith, and you've abandoned the personal God with His with his way, truth, and life, and with his absolute truth. And you have selected cosmic consciousness. Now I'm using that as an all-inclusive rhetorical phrase. It's a, it's a catch-all, but that's exactly what it is. And yet, 25% of the American population have abandoned God, a belief in God, and embraced some form of that lawless, um, 
void of moral code, consciousness, cosmic consciousness. And so what is that? That's the void. You've got the void. God has always warned his people, do not allow voids to grow in your society. He hasn't used that term very often, but he has used it. I, I want to address you to 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 21. God said, you should not turn aside after empty things that can't profit and can't deliver, since they are empty and void. So God said, in your society, and by the way, what is society? It's our lives collectively. And so it really, on an elemental level, society is your living room, your bedroom, your personal private life. We like to think our life is private and has no bearing and no consequence on the greater social order. It's because people are deceived and they think the government creates society. And that's why, they, and that's why you find people voting so foolishly, so selfishly, because they expect the government to create a context called society while they themselves retreat to their own private, personal, corralled uh, uh, life, their little monastic you know, lifestyle, thinking that however they live has no impact, but society is their life and their, your life and your life and your life and all of ours together. And uh, so God always said to his people, turn aside, turn away from empty things. Don't fill your life with things that are simply a void, that are going to make your life void. They can't profit you. They can't deliver you. So don't waste your time with things that don't profit and things that will not deliver you since they are empty. And why did God say that? Because if you do keep filling your life with empty things, your society will be a void, will be empty, and you'll have just exactly what we've got. How did America go from its hard, certainly, a bunch of very imperfect people, certainly not a bunch of uh, moral, uh, 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 moral giants, but people aspiring to, 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 to see God hovering over a void and bring forth something good. They had a vision for something good to happen. How did we go from that to what we have today? A society fragmented, fractured, and collecting together in angry groups, identifying not as individuals, but identifying as victim groups, all fighting, all demanding from the central government that the government provide happiness, that the government create the filling for the void. And yet, every day, the way we live our lives creates and deepens the void in this country. And so God has said in his word, stop, stop participating in the void. That's how you turn it around, is you become part of God's program 
for the void. Remember what happened in the beginning that I opened up with. But let me just say this to you, because this message is, has got a big upsweep at the end of it. And it's exciting, the time we're living in. If you read your Bible, when you read to the end, it does not end in a car crash. It does not end in a catastrophe. It ends in a glorious, loving, peace, uh, uh, um, uh, saturated, glorious future of millions and millions of people fellowshipping and harmonizing with the Lord at the center of it. And it's, the Bible says, eye has not seen or ear heard. It hasn't even entered into the heart of people what God has provided for us. So whatever God does to, to fill the earth that is void ends up working. God does not fail. So we stand in a very precarious moment right now, but we hold all the cards not the people we vote into office, not the government, you and I. We hold all the cards. The void is going to be what it is based on what we do or what we don't do. What we don't do will allow the default to simply fill the void. But the creators of the void, and you know, they don't know what they're doing. They've got their eyes on this, this dark future that they think is glorious, that they think is going to be wonderful. And you read about this sort of thing in history over and over again. You know, people are sinners. And, and except for the grace of God, we'd be right there with them. In one way or another, we'd be following some dark path into some state of ruin. But throughout history, we read about nations and empires and countries and societies and they, they, they come to this place where people get these crazy ideas, tweakers. They've, they've got to tweak everything. They just can't leave. And when there's a problem, they get in there and want to fix it. But unless it's God's fix, they just make it worse. In 1970 in Russia, they had a problem in their, in their society, their whole nation. Um, and uh, there were pro problems just like there were in all of those um, societies that were run by monarchs. And uh, the Bolsheviks had a solution. We'll just force equity upon everybody, equal outcomes. And there was a horrible revolution. And by the time they were done, less than 100 years later, 100 million people were murdered in the name of Marxism. 100 million, not accidental deaths, murders, 100 million. That's a void. Those same people, that same ideology has filtrated into our culture and into our society. And they are just absolutely as bent as the first Bolsheviks were that they can improve, help us, straighten out our problems, make life better. And they are creating a void working at it, but they're not doing it because they want Satan to rule or Lucifer to rule or they want evil. They think good is going to come out of this, but that's sinners and unsaved people think like that. If, if you didn't let God get a hold of you, you'd probably be thinking like that in one form, one way or another. 
but the creators of the void in American culture don't know how God works. Hallelujah. They don't know that God is ahead of them in this thing. And let me show you how God works. Psalm 119, verse 126 says, It is time for you, O Lord, to work, for they have made void your law. Let me say it again. It is time for you, O Lord, to work, for they have made void your law. The psalmist wrote this at a time when he looked at society and saw that it was right in the same position that you and I are in. That the tweakers had gotten a hold of people and were misleading and misguiding and they were digging a bigger ditch for themselves. And he cries out, the psalmist does, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he knows that God hovers over voids. If he is allowed to, if he's not resistant. See, in the beginning when he created this, there was no resistance. God did what he absolutely pleased to, was pleased to do. He hovers over a void. He speaks his instructions, his word into that void. It produces light. That light is raised up and separated from darkness. And he launched the world with that principle. That's how God deals with voids. And uh, so the psalmist says, Lord, it's time for you to work. They're making a void. It's time for you to go to work. You see, Satan thinks that he is creating an army of atheists to, to march America into its glorious socialist Marxist future where everybody's going to have equity. Everyone will have a piece of bread and a cup of water. And there will no longer be any oppression. We will oppress the oppressors. We'll drag them down from their high and lofty places. We'll crush them. We'll make them our slaves. It's about time they were put into chains and uh, had to uh, give their material blessing to those that haven't had. So they see this glorious future that they want to march everybody off into. Um, but the fact of the matter is, while the devil thinks he's creating an army of atheists to do his bidding, the reality is that he's simply doing nothing more than making people hungry. He's creating a void in sinners. By ripping out the truth of God's word, he's taking out of people what actually keeps them alive. You know, unsafe people live under the rain that God causes to fall on the just and the unjust. Our society, even the whole world, has got these, these idioms, these ideas that have de been derived from God. Little particles of light, little bits of goodness that, that help to create some level of grace in the world, in society. And so God makes his blessing to fall upon the, the just and the unjust. If the world were totally, completely empty of the grace of God, totally empty of the word of God, it would end it would be hell right now. Are you listening to me? And so, in their attempt to pull out of people every reference to God's goodness, they are simply starving them. They are making them hungry. And you know what happens to hungry people. Those that hunger and thirst, glory to God, the devil thinks he's raising up an army of atheists, and he's simply preparing them to be filled 
with righteousness and with truth. Glory to God. He is simply readying and preparing the next great Jesus people movement. Hallelujah. Can you say praise the Lord? Remember, because I've been alluding to it throughout the message, God's pattern is the Spirit hovers over the void and then begins to speak over it. We have been praying, doing the same thing that ignorant people do. Oh God, give us the right leader so everything will be right. And God said, that's not the way I sent salvation into the world. I sent salvation into the world. I came myself as the light of the world, knocking upon the door of every heart. If you want the void out of your society and you want to see a garden instead of a, a field of weeds, begin to sow, begin to hover over the sinner's heart with intercessory prayer. Begin to speak the word of God. Go out and tell people about Jesus. Speak the light into them. Light will come forth and then the separation will take place. You're grieved that in our society up is down, right is wrong. You're grieved over the, um, the gender fluidity, insanity, the war against reality. Really is what it is. It's a, there's a war against reality. Gender fluidity is an oxymoron. Think about it. It's, it's like, uh, it's like uh, jumbo shrimp. They don't jumbo shrimp. You're either a shrimp or you're big. It's, you understand what I'm saying? Well, gender neutrality, same thing. Gender by mere definition is what it is. You can't say that all the, we're, going to, we're going to offer the option of fluidity to gender. That's like saying we want the sun to come up in the west once in a while. This is, we're tired of this discrimination. That past, you know, from the east to the west, you know, they've ruled long enough. That is, that is rotation supremacy. <laughs> and it's about time somebody do something about it. And since they can't grab the earth and make it spin the other way, they simply identify we're spinning from left to right instead of right to left. You understand, it is a war on reality. But you begin to pray and speak over those minds that are darkened in that void. And let God speak light. And, and you're grieved that, that, uh, that the waters that your children have to drink from in school, you've got you've to work so hard to undo everything that the, that the teachers are doing to them when you, when you get them back home again. And you're grieved about there's no separation. God put in place a process that create that if you follow it, it'll create the separation. Spirit hovers. There's intercession. Word is spoken. God produces light and he separates light from darkness. The light and the darkness will automatically be separated and be, be set apart from each other. But step one is you have to take responsibility for the void. If not, nature is there, just like Aristotle said, to fill the void. So, in the very beginning, and here's our altar call this morning. In the very beginning of the earth's creation, God took that principle and put it to work himself. But then, 
He created you. And he turned that authority over to you. He said, now you go multiply and you fill the earth. I'm now handing you this principle and I want you to rule over the earth. That's you and I this morning. God is saying, you go do the same. I formed the earth with this principle. I will empower you. If you'll follow it with me, you can fill voids. You can fill voids. Hallelujah. If that sounds good to anybody, I want you to close your Bible and, or, and uh, stand up with me.